The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Please turn your Bible to James 4 as we read the latter portion as we continue on in this series. It's not uncommon in our circles to preface any mention of plans with, Lord willing, to humbly acknowledge that we cannot guarantee our plans with any type of certainty, whether a family outing, ministry event, or even our next worship service. Life is filled with uncertainties, but we have one certain thing, that God has revealed His will for us in Christ Jesus. But when it comes to trusting the Lord's will, we oftentimes have a battle of wills, of our wills contesting with God's. And I think James is is touching upon this issue, talking about plans, expectations, and even what it means to submit our will to the Lordship of Christ. Please follow as I read James 4, beginning verse 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. This is God's Word. Father, we would ask once again that the words of my mouth, the meditations of each of our hearts might be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Just a few weeks ago, shoppers at the Tinger Outlet Shopping Center Uh, had a rude interruption to their plans when a large sinkhole developed there in the parking lot. My wife was actually there when it happened and witnessed part of it and thankfully was able to drive away unaffected. But while she was there, she was near a woman whose car was swallowed up in the sinkhole who was visibly upset uh, and angry, frustrated at the inconvenience, the damage. And uh, my wife observed how this woman called her husband and began to explain what happened. And then after a pause, her husband started laughing hysterically. (laughs) I just relieved that no one was hurt. So for her, it was a matter of inconvenience and frustration and waiting and insurance. But for him, he was just happy that his wife was okay. We need perspective in a world with shaky foundations. Our plans change. Our plans are interrupted. We don't have mastery or control over our circumstances, but we worship a God, a God who, whose kingdom stands upon a firm foundation that cannot be shaken and, who, and whose will will trump all others. 
Our plans are disrupted, sometimes because of poor planning on our part, sometimes due to no fault of our own. We live in a world that is uncertain. And so we must humble ourselves, our plans and expectations, and worship the God who provides one certain and sure hope in the everlasting salvation provided for us through Jesus Christ. I want to approach this text by considering the warnings of James, the warning against pride, warning against consumed with our own will, and counter that with the implicit command of humility that really comes from verse 10 earlier in this chapter to contrast the dangers of pride and what does it mean to walk in humility before the Lord. When I look at three dangers of pride, first is the pride of presumption. James confronts presumptuous pride first by uh, designating those who pursue wealth by way of trade. And in the first century, I understand that if you wanted to be wealthy, the best and easiest way to gain wealth was through trade, trading goods and services. And if you wanted to stay wealthy, you became a landowner. That was the economy of the first century. Now, James is not condemning wealth or the wealthy or the means to acquire wealth, but he is rebuking the assumption that wealth is simply yours for the taking or that your plans will prosper by your own wit and merit. I think he's, he's addressing the spirit of his age that is akin to the attitude in our culture of making things happen. The American can-do spirit. We certainly live in an age of confidence and optimism in our own ability to master our circumstances, to master our work and our finances, our economics. And optimism is not bad, but must be tempered with realism, humility, and deep and abiding trust in the living God. We're all too familiar with many get-rich-quick schemes that leave people high and dry. We know that some 80% or more of all business startups fail. And most of us can be guilty at some time or another. And the presumption that we have job security or a strong economy or a retirement waiting for us or perhaps even the expectation of an inheritance. James says, you don't know what tomorrow may bring. No matter what your boss says, the nation's chief economist, your stockbroker, or the weatherman, especially the weatherman. He offers this rhetorical question, what is your life? To remind each of us of our human frailty. The Ronks man that was killed last week by his neighbor didn't wake up that day thinking that that day would be his last. James says that you and I are like a mist that forms over a lake on a cold night only to be burned off by the mid-morning sun. It vanishes within hours. We proudly take our lives for granted. We fail to appreciate our health, our relationships, our most precious gifts until they are taken away from us. We are blind to how desperately dependent we are on the Lord from whom comes every good and perfect gift, and that's what makes our presumption so indicting. We make plans. We schedule appointments. We uh, make our commitments assuming that we'll have enough time and health and opportunity to fulfill them all. We get frustrated when an unexpected event alters our plans. 
a back injury postpones a home project, or a vacation or travel plans, or hinders your productivity at work. An unannounced guest throws your evening agenda out the window. A traffic accident makes you late for an appointment, forcing you to reschedule. The neediness of a child or a spouse may rob you of the good night's sleep that you were anticipating. Any number of things can hinder our plans, our agenda. We live under the false illusion that we are the master of our own destiny. We overestimate how much control and influence we have over our circumstances. So James is suggesting that we must hold to our plans more loosely, yield to God more strongly, and acknowledge that His will prevails, trusting that He gives us everything we need for life and for godliness. Our presumption and our pride also fails to respect our limitations. One truth I struggle with is that God provides us enough time to do everything that He wants us to do. I struggle with time all the time. How about you? We struggle to cram 16 hours of work within an eight-hour time window. We underestimate how much time is needed to get to a certain destination, to accomplish a project. We leave the house not giving ourselves enough time to arrive at a destination on time. The man who runs a marathon just after having heart surgery or skis a black diamond after staying away from the slopes for many years. In each case, we fail to respect the limitations and frailties of our bodies. We even overestimate our powers of persuasion, our self-control and decision-making abilities, and and thus we resent people who disagree with us. We reject accountability. We fail to seek counsel of people who have more expertise. We are limited. We are finite. Secondly, James addresses the pride of boasting in verse 16. You see, underlying all of our presumption really is a deep arrogance. We assume that our gifts and opportunities are ours for the taking. We fail to acknowledge the hand of God behind them all. We rob God of His glory when we take credit for our accomplishments. We can boast and be guilty of name-dropping, showing off who we know. We can loudly and widely share our travel and vacation plans to the envy of others. Look at me. It's cute when a four-year-old boasts in his ability to ride a bike or climb a tree, but sadly, many of us never outgrow it. We want the attention. We want the adulation and as I examine this, this issue of boasting, I'm, I'm convinced that at the heart of our boasting is a deep insecurity. Ingrained in our fallen nature is that, that burdening question, am I good enough? Am I special? Will I be admired and accepted by others? Sometimes we live like, life like we're on stage like we're performing for others. And there are times when we shine to the applause of others, but then there are other times when we falter to our own shame. The Scriptures probe into this double-mindedness where we desire fame and glory, and yet we also loathe it. We want the attention, but then it overwhelms us. We desire a safe place where we can simply be ourselves 
Leave the stage, stop performing and pretending and rest in the goodness and the acceptance of our Creator and Redeemer. And thirdly, James confronts in verse 17 our pride of disobedience. He says that you know, we know the right thing to do, but we fail to do it. You can call that neglect, you can call that laziness, but the scriptures call it rebellion. We would like to be our own masters. We want to write the rules. The speed limit applies to everyone else. Recently, I was getting gas at Costco, and I know how you line up, and you're waiting, and the cars pull ahead. And I guess I was just a a little too slow pulling up, and a car comes roaring out from behind me, right in front of me. It it was just one one of the rudest actions I'd ever, you know, experienced at Costco. And I was expecting to be some 20-year-old punk to get out of the car, but no, it was a man much older than me. And I I had to stop and think, am I going to say anything, confront this man? And 20 years ago, I probably would have, but hopefully I'm a little older and wiser, and and I just let it go by the grace of God. But we're hasty. We're demanding. We, you know, run. When, When I was in China earlier this year, I noticed how people just run over each other in public, whereas the Japanese culture, people respect boundaries. Every culture is different, but in each case, each of us has a way and occasion where we feel entitled to disobey. We make excuses for ourselves. I'm tired. I'm in a hurry. I'm hungry. I'm angry. I've had a bad day. I've been mistreated. I've been neglected. Any number of rationalizations we give to justify our disobedience. But our sin is rooted in our pride, our refusal to submit to the lordship of God, our only creator. We conveniently ignore stipulations, pretending that we didn't see them. But integrity matters in things large, in all things small. And as God's people, we are called to bear witness and offer up the reputation of our lawgiver and the way that we live and offer up our obedience in all things small and large. And so we live in a world where we have a test of wills, and we have this problem of pride, and Scripture would call us to live differently, to walk in humility. And verse 10 in the prior passage, I believe, offers the theme of James. It says, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. And in that battle of wills, we have to turn my will be done into thy will be done. So in what ways might we humble ourselves? Well, first, we must submit our plans to the Lord. Popular favorite verse from Proverbs 3.5 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. Too often we make plans and then ask God to bless them. But Scripture would direct us to submit our plans to the scrutiny of God's Word and ask ourselves, do our plans reflect God's priorities? Are the aim of my plans to build up God's kingdom or advance my own kingdom? When making plans, do they compel you to trust God or bolster up your own sense of self sufficiency. We make many important decisions in life. Where to live, where to go to school, where to work, whom to marry, 
what to do with our money, where to serve in ministry. And in all these decisions, both great and small, we have to ask ourselves, do we desire that God's will prevails in our lives? Or do we secretly desire and hope that God will just dismiss us, overlook us, so that we get our way? I think pretty much any parent can remember a time when one of their children perhaps goes to mom and asks for something, and mom says something like, well, go ask your father. And so the child goes and asks the father, but indicates mom already said okay. We're really good at, at getting our way, trying to influence uh, the, the will of the giver and the provider. You know, parents who are blessed with a strong-willed child know that they have to pick their battles wisely. Fighting on every hill is exhausting. And there are times when a wise parent will let a strong-willed child have his or her way and perhaps to suffer some consequences, to let them be hurt without being harmed. And I believe some of us are strong-willed as children of God. We want to honor God, but we also want our way. We, in our fits, can be incorrigible. We fail to learn some of the same lessons God is teaching us over and over again. I met recently with a member of our church, and this is one of several meetings like this I've had over the years, a member of our church who's trying to minister to somebody outside our church, someone who grew up in church but is suffering the consequences of many poor decisions. And now this particular person is stuck in a cycle of manipulation, of not taking responsibility, blame shifting, has a deep sense of entitlement. And so I'm counseling this member about how do you care for somebody like that? When, when, when the counsel seems so obvious, but this person's not receiving it well. And we, just, we talked about the need to provide friendship, to provide some services, to offer counsel, but to have good boundaries. Perhaps it's not giving them money, because giving them money may alter the nature of the relationship. It may enable unhelpful dependencies. And perhaps this person you're trying to love and care for may need to suffer some consequences to grow up and mature and take responsibility for his or herself. And I think sometimes we're like that with God. Psalm 37.4 instructs us to, to delight ourselves in the Lord, and he will give us the desires of our hearts. That sounds pretty good, right? Sounds like something similar to what Jesus says, ask and you shall receive. John 15, Jesus says, ask whatever you wish, and it'll be done for you. But before we think this affirms the health and wealth gospel, remember the context. Jesus says, abide in me. Rest in me. Walk with me. Trust in me. You know, Jesus asked his father to take the cup from him. He didn't want to drink it. But in the end, he submitted to the will of his Father, became subject to the cross in order to bring about the redemption of his people. I believe the Bible indicates that the desires of our hearts must be molded more and more to the Father's will, and that takes a lot of wrestling and prayer. It takes 
receiving counsel. It takes humility. It takes a commitment to learning and growing before the face of God. Now, there are some who conclude that any type of long-term planning is just wrong. When I was a youth, the, the mantra was common, let go and let God, as though to make plans was somehow wrong or, or sinful. But I believe the Bible is not against long-term planning. Proverbs clearly seems to commend planning and preparations uh, for difficult times. But there's, a, there's quite a difference between presumptuous, proud, self-willed planning and submitting one's plans to God's will, committing it to prayer, and being open to contingencies that become evident through God's providence. God can teach us and show us if we are willing to learn and respond to his will. Years ago, our session uh, uh, imp- implemented a strategic plan. We set goals according to what we believe were God's priorities for our ministry, you know, based upon our strengths, our weaknesses, and our opportunities, and, and ways that we could impact the kingdom uh, here in our church and with our ministry partners throughout the world. And they were, they were good goals, and, and it's good to make goals. It is good to labor to meet them, but to not hold on to them so tightly that we fail to see the changing nature of circumstances, needs, and priorities, which can change over time. Too well that our plans can be foiled by life's complexities. How many of our travel or vacation plans you know, go according to plan? How many appointments have you had to reschedule? How many projects have been delayed? But in all these things, we submit to God, and we submit to Him in such a way that we pursue a relationship with Him that we desire to know him, that we desire to receive counsel from his word and from other trusted, wise, godly counselors. Of course, Proverbs 3, 6 says, In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight on the roadway to glory. Well, secondly, if we would be wise and humble before the Lord, we also need to acknowledge that you need God's favor. The wise young man asks the girl's father for favor before he begins a courtship or engagement. Without God's favor, the best plans fail. No plan is fail-proof. We can do everything right and still fail. You can purchase a home right before a recession, losing your job, losing your home's value. You can invest in the stock market right before a crash. You can loan money to somebody who skips town. Over 15 years ago, when I was finishing seminary and looking for a call to ministry before I began connecting here at Westminster, I almost took a position that in hindsight would have been disastrous. And I credit my wife for holding me back. And I'm so grateful for the Lord and so grateful for my wife uh, helping me to stay the course and trust the Lord for the right fit which this ministry has been a, tremendously, a tremendous blessing and a wonderful fit for myself and my, my family. I needed favor. I needed wisdom and counsel from others. I needed something that I lacked. And we face situations all the time where we lack wisdom. We don't have the answers. And we need to listen to the counsel of others and submissively trust the Lord for direction, for the right fit, for the right timing. In such humility, we also must acknowledge our limits. 
We have limits with how much we take on. We need margin in our lives. We need to address a Messiah complex where we think we have to be the fix-it, the, the one who solves other people's problems. As I observed Jesus in his life and ministry, he was extraordinarily effective in ministry, but not terribly efficient. Jesus only encountered a few 10,000 people in his lifetime, but because he submitted to his Father's will, made the greatest and most transformative impact on this world that we have seen in all of history. So there's a lesson there. As I studied the Gospel of John with my son, we're looking at how Jesus just is consumed with his Father's will. My, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. That I, I can do nothing apart from the will of my Father. No one talks that way. That sounds codependent. He's talking about he can only do what his Father has told him to do. But Jesus, in his zeal and his intimacy with the Father, was united with the will of his Father. So thirdly, we must learn to give credit to God for our gifts and successes. Psalm 16.3 says, Commit to the Lord whatever you do, and your plans will succeed. When I was in college, my father started up a new business, he and his colleagues pulled the resources together. They raised the capital needed, and before long, they had more business than they knew what to do with. Things were going great until they hit a cash flow crisis. They couldn't get a line of credit due to circumstances beyond their control, and the whole thing collapsed with much financial loss. My father was tested. He was humbled, and to his credit, he rebounded in the following years. It was a trial of faith character and determination. And we're humbly reminded that not all of our plans succeed according to our designs. But if we submit them to the Lord, we know he will lead us, provide for us, protect us. And oftentimes the Lord is teaching us to adopt his priorities, to learn to trust him even in hard things, to persevere, and to learn to give him the credit and the glory for all things that come from his hand. Well, lastly, the final verse calls us to do good and to failure to do what we know to be right. The Bible calls sin. Recall the teaching of Jesus about the servants who had merely done their duty. And it's a humble reminder here that even after we've done everything in obedience, we've merely done our duty. And yet it is still wise and good and appropriate to commend our fellow servants and that we will do that after the service tonight. So we acknowledge and recognize the, the faithful service of Patricia Bleeker and Betsy Graver, two faithful servants who have served this church for 40 plus years. And how awesome and how rare is that we honor them. It's right to show them our admiration, our appreciation. But as I know that they would want me to say, they would want to qualify all of that, that it was only due to the grace of God in them. And that all of their service is but a, a sacrifice, an offering to the Lord, to the one who is the true servant, is the one who truly humbled himself, who truly uses his faithful and ready servants to extend his kingdom work and be a blessing to the church. These dear servants point us to the great servant, 
the one who deserves our honor and price, the good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep, who denounced pride, who resisted temptation, who humbled himself and submitted himself to the will of his Father to secure our eternal redemption. As we balance our call to serve and we compare it to our Lord and Savior, we have to acknowledge that nothing we ever do is enough. But Jesus is enough. Jesus has done what is enough and necessary to secure for us eternal foundations, access and entrance into eternal glory. But even Jesus, you remember, said to his admirers, he said, why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. And so if Jesus would say that, we have to not call ourselves good. We never have to say, we can never say that we've done enough or humbled ourselves enough. We cannot merit our salvation. We cannot perform our way into God's good graces. Nor can we express enough humility in response to the astounding message of salvation from Scripture. Jesus is the true humble one who took up the form of a servant, who took up the role that we despised, who endured the mocking that we would have scorned, who joyfully did the will of his Father that which we loathed, who met the righteous requirements of the law before which we fall woefully short. So what do we do in response to this? Let our hearts be glad. Let us serve Let us make plans. Let us do good and submit ourselves to the will of God, being deeply aware of all that Jesus has done for us to enable us to serve him and no longer be slaves to sin. Stop comparing yourself to other servants. Stop boasting in your accomplishments. Give glory to God. Take up the lower positions of service. Let others give you the recognition that you might desire. Find the kingdom work that no one else is doing. Not to make a name for yourself, but to spread the name and the fame of the one who is worthy of all adoration, praise, and our deepest loyalty. The psalmist in Psalm 40 says, I desire to do your will. Psalm 119 says, I delight to do the will of God. In one place, C.S. Lewis writes, Heaven is the place for people who say to God, Your will be done. Hell is the place for people to whom God says, Your will be done. Each of us is on an eternal destiny, contingent upon a will. Will we yield to the will of our Heavenly Father? Or will we stubbornly determine to go our own way? Yes, we live in a world that has a test of wills with many decisions to be made, and each is leading down a pathway to an eternal destiny. As we reflect upon God's Word, let us be wise and take from the Apostle James this message to humble ourselves to seek the face of the one who came to serve, who truly humbled himself and submitted his will to the will of his Father. Not in fatalistic resignation, but in joyful, relational, intimate submission to the one who loved him. And he loves us. And he welcomes us. He invites us. 
and he calls us. And it's his will to bless us and to receive us into an eternal kingdom that shall not be shaken, shall not fall, but shall endure forever and ever. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, you have made your will known in your word. And we struggle to conform to it, yet we're grateful for the gospel, the gospel that breaks us and humbles us and transforms us to be more willing and obedient servants as we yield to the one who came to serve, to lay down his life for us and to lead us into eternal glory. We pray that you would be our guide and our keeper, our help and our strength this week. So we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.